When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 227, and we're recording on April 14th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. Welcome. Hello. Week question mark of quarantine. We don't even know. We're midweek five here. Okay, great. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Same, same. And schools are closed for the rest of school year here. Oh, is that new? That's new. Uh, no, I didn't. I just assumed, but I guess they did. <laughs> I was like, of course they are. But I guess they did make an official announcement here in Pennsylvania um, uh, yeah. last week. So I think, and I think it was the same for Virginia. Yeah. Yes. Virginia school closed, schools closed for the rest of the year, like two weeks ago. And today was the first day of distance learning. So oh. that's going to, that's an experience for me. Let me tell you what, because it's like. I am not going to homeschool because I can't because I'm not a teacher. I don't have a degree in education and I'm not going to pretend like I do. So that's not happening. Also, you're doing a full time job. I am. Um, But the county, like the school sent over video, like the teachers made videos of them doing lessons and stuff that the boys are watching. It's really great. Like the school did a great job. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. I don't know. Quarantine life. Everybody's (laughs) doing the best they can. That's right. That's right. So, um, let's see. Okay, so we need to mention that we have recorded a new trailer for Get Booked. And if you listen to any of the big three shows from Book Right, the main show, all the books, or Get Booked, um, they all have new trailers. So those are going to be drop- dropped into the feed. So you're probably going to see it like show up in your podcatcher. Um, but that's just what that is. Just wanted to let you know that that's what that was. Um, okay, so how the show works. As I mentioned, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So you can send your reading recommendation request to us via the form in the show notes on the site, or you can email them to us at getbooked at bookriot.com. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't have COVID. There's just something in my throat at the time. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> if your, <laughs> if your um, question is time sensitive, please put that in the subject line of the email or in big letters in the first line if you're using the form so we can get to it on time. We might email you back if your question's already been answered or if we're not going to get to it on time. Um, and we do also want to mention that we have been collecting all of our coverage of what's happening in the book world in response to the pandemic on the site. Um, so if you are interested in what's been going on in the book world or how the book world it's been affected or what's closed and what's open or all of that, you can just go to bookriot.com and click the headline um, on, you know, the headline space at the top of the site, like where a headline would go. That's where it is. And you'll get all of our coverage of it in one spot. Okay. Um, so we do have two pieces of feedback. Let's see. Mallory says, for the reader in episode 225 who's looking for historical queer reads, I would definitely recommend Cantores by Carolina de Robertos. Follows a group of queer women in the 1970s in Uruguay. I keep seeing recommendations for that book. I need to pick it up. And then the person for, oh, same question, who was asking for queer historical books. I would recommend Jazz Moon by Joe Okunquo. It's about two gay black men in the 20s. Also, The Gods of Tango by Carolina de Robertis. <laughs> That's the same person as the first person recommended, um, which is about Lita, who's an Italian immigrant with a violin who moves to Argentina in 1913 to be with her husband, but he's dead when she arrives. So Lita starts dressing as a man to make a decent living playing tango music. That sounds amazing. 
That sounds amazing. It does. Okay. I'm going to go see if my library has that. Okay. Well, now I'm not going to go. I'm going to look at my phone to clarify before anybody (laughs) sends me like a DM about why are you going out in public? I'm not. I'm just going to look on Libby. Um, Okay. So Jen's going to read our first question and away we will go. All right. Our first question is from Maria, who says, I'm looking for an addicting series like Twilight, but good. Well, okay. Well, (laughs) we'll just leave that alone for a minute. Uh, Maria says, I don't mind fantasy, but I'm not crazy about demon types of fantasy, if that makes sense. I just really want four or five big books with romance and action and a fun plot, even if it's not high quality. Basically, those YA series like Hunger Games and Divergent, but for adults, I am considering Outlander. All right. Well, like, those are Maria's opinions. We'll just say that right now. Uh, Before we give recommendations, we will do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them. But he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage. But as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, He'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. All right, so I'm going to keep talking. So addicting series that have fantasy and or romance and action and a fun plot. I picked the Psy Changeling series by Nalini Singh. And the tricky thing about recommending this is that there are in the dozens of, I mean, I think we're on like 18 now. There are so many books. Um, the true first book in the series 
is Slave to Sensation. But you can pick up with Silver Silence, which is the first book in a like series within a series. It's called Psy Changeling Trinity, and it introduces you to the world of the series and, you know, the stakes, but also is a starting on point if you don't want to go back and read like two decades worth of books. I actually, <laughs> and I would even say that if you're new to the series, start with a Trinity and then go backwards because they are really, really good. They're all three of them out. And I love them so much. And these are shapeshifter, suspense, romance, action, sci-fi, which is so many things, right? Mm-hmm. Like the world of this series is that there are the Psy, who are a race of humans who can do things with their brains, like telekinesis and telepathy and all of those things. And then there are the changelings, who are shapeshifters of all different kinds. There's like dolphin shapeshifters and wolf shapeshifters and bears and the whole nine yards. Then there are vanilla humans who don't have any special powers or abilities, and they're all trying to coexist. And obviously that's complicated in lots of different ways. And the each book is a pair-up of different characters. They are romances. They always end with a pairing. And I love them so much because you see these characters coming from all these different backgrounds, also all these different ethnicities, all these different geographic locations. And there's usually a murder or some kind of very high stakes political conspiracy where, like, people are going to die if the thing doesn't get done before the countdown is over. And then there's all of the fantastic world building. And I am so in love with this series. I am, like, ride or die for it. I love even the books that aren't my favorite in the series are still just, like, brain candy or just, like, what's going to happen next? It's so it really does suck you in and make you care about them. And the and again, the world building is so complex and interesting. But I think she does a good job of not making it too confusing. Like, you just kind of can go with it because there's there's so many other things that you can focus on. You don't need to know every detail of the world building to care about the plot or the characters. And you can pick it up as you go along. And Silver Silence, which is the first in this, like, sub-series, um, is about a very high-ranking psi woman who uh, is in a, like, will-they-won't-they situation with an alpha bear shapeshifter (laughs) who is, like, kind of big and cuddly. Like, he's really... He's not, like aggro in any real way like he is just like he's just like a bear you just want to hug him and she gets targeted by an assassin and so she has to go and stay with his bear clan for protection and it's amazing y'all like it's just great uh i just love this series so i think it will serve what you're looking for so again the whole series is called the side changeling series the author is nalini singh i'm recommending you jump on with silver silence which is the first in the side changeling trinity Okay, um, first I will say that Outlander sounds like a, a great pick for this, because you said in your question, Ray, that you were considering Outlander. I think that would be really up your alley if you like uh, romance plot action kind of stuff. I picked romance plot action <laughs> with vampires, because it's Twilight, but good? I don't know. So I haven't read Twilight, so I don't actually know what the comparison is like. But I picked the London Steampunk series by Beck McMaster, which is a big series. There are five books um, in it. And I think there are some like little novellas in between that I've not read, but whatever, it's fine. Um, So this takes place in Victorian England in the Whitechapel district, which is this like kind of rough and tumble area of London. And the main character's name is 
Honoria, Honoria, I have never said that out loud, like the word honor with IA at the end of it, Honoria, whose father has recently died. He was working on a vaccine for essentially extreme vampirism because in this kind of steampunk version of London, vampires and werewolves both exist um, and are parts of high society, very integrated into society. Uh, and there are social structures that are set in place uh, for people who are like servants of the various and sundry supernatural creatures and all this kind of thing. So her father has mysteriously died while he was working on the vaccine and left her alone to raise her siblings, her younger siblings. She's got a sister and a brother. Her brother is showing signs of having been infected with the vampirism or maybe it was werewolfism. That's not the word, but you know what I mean? Um, and so she has moved to uh, Whitechapel to keep herself safe because another one of the like nobles who is deeply involved in the supernatural society is after her family for reasons that will be explained when you read the book. And so she's moved to Whitechapel because she knows that he will never follow her there or find her there. Um, and then Blade is the kind of hero of this book. And he is the, you know, master of Whitechapel, as it were, like the king of the underworld. <laughs> but not not the vampire underworld, just like the criminal underworld, but he is also a vampire. Um, and he is one of these, you know, kind of very alpha characters. No one ever crosses him. He's got a bad reputation. Um, and part of his reputation comes from, since he is a vampire, when he changed, he killed one of his family members, not uh, like on purpose, just out of whatever, like bloodlust or violence or what, you know, um, hallucinations, all that kind of thing. But it's really added to his his reputation as a dangerous person. And so he has his own reasons for really disliking this um, noble person who uh, Honoria is running from. So he like summons her to his home, offers her protection, mostly to get on the nerves of this like dude he doesn't like. Um, and she has to give him something in return for that protection, but she doesn't want to be his mistress and she doesn't want to be his, what in the book they call a thrall, which is a person, like a servant who um, the vampire feeds from occasionally at like her human grocery store. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't want to do either of those things. So instead she offers to give him etiquette and speech lessons three nights a week because he has a lot of like complexes about how he is like very wealthy, but also sounds like he's from the streets. Um, which is a pretty common trope in romance that I like kind of super love. And so their relationship goes from there. And there's a lot of political intrigue. There's It's a very plot-heavy, action-y kind of book. Um, there is werewolf, uh, vampire, um, what do you call it? Like, hostility. And Honoria, despite the fact that she is, like, very much indebted to this man, never acts like she's got a lot of pride. It's just really great. They're both really great characters. They're both very headstrong and stubborn, but it lacks a lot of those kind of, in my opinion, as a reader, like I do not love those romance tropes that are like, if you just literally said one sentence with your face mouth, this whole book would not need to happen. Like just communicate. <laughs> None of that happens. Like they say the things with their face mouths, which I love. So, and then there, you know, are five more fun escapist reads for you. So that's Kiss of Steel is the first one is the London steampunk series by Beck McMaster. So question two is from Kara, who says, I've been serving in the Peace Corps for about 20 months, and in mid-March, we got the call to evacuate due to the pandemic. I was given less than 24 hours to say goodbye to my host family village and less than 72 hours before leaving the country as the borders were closing. It was awful and traumatic, and now I'm having trouble focusing on anything. Um, the only book that has held my attention since has been The Dragon Republic by R.F. Kuang, which is a bit out of my regular wheelhouse, but is incredibly absorbing and emotional and angry in a way that really worked for me in my current dark place. What should I read next? Okay, Jen, what you got? Oh, boy. So <laughs> I feel you on, I mean, this is not where I'm at, but I have been where you are mm -hmm. in terms of like needing cathartically angry, dark books. And The Traitor Baru Cormorant by Seth Dickinson is the first in a three book series. The third is coming out theoretically this year, I believe. And the first two are out now. And it is so dark 
and angry and very much in the same sort of heroine wheelhouse as uh, the RF Kuang, which I also loved and comes with like also a billion trigger warnings for like institutionalized homophobia and, you know, torture and sexism and sexual assault and just all of the trigger warnings, like assume that this book is, you know, harm to children. Like it's all in here. Uh, But it is a fantasy also. It is in a sort of historical-ish setting and it's very international. And the main character, Baru, lives on a very like, you know, pretty idyllic island. Like there are problems, but they mostly solve them. It's pretty sustainable. They have a very open society. There's lots of different kinds of families available and, you know, there's no homophobia institutionalized. But there's this empire that comes in that starts with trade and then gains economic control and then gains political control and just like blows it all to hell. And Baru is very smart and she gets recruited by an agent from this empire to go to one of their special schools and rises very quickly and is basically offered like a job as, you know, an empire agent. And she takes it and her goal is to bring down the empire from the inside. Like she is convinced that if she gets enough power, she can destroy this empire that basically destroyed her family and her home. And but to do that, She has to be complicit. She has to get the power first. And to get the power, she has to do the bad things. And boy, does she do the bad things. And the genius of this book is that you are actually never quite sure where she is in her end game. So you're like, is she, is this a good bad thing or a bad bad thing? Like, is this going (laughs) to lead to good or is this just bad? And, like, you don't know. And there's so many other characters with so many other loyalties and conflicts and, you know, it is just rough. It's rough. But it is, it's really immersive. It is very cathartic in certain ways. And it's really well plotted and it is really complex in terms of examining issues of like complicity and power dynamics and how all these things work. And also she's like a genius economist and to follow the money in a medieval setting is sort of fascinating. I don't feel like you see that hardly ever. So it's got a lot going on. I think it will work for you. Again, that's the Trader Baru Cormorant, which is the first in the Masquerade series by Seth Dickinson. Okay, I picked The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin, which is her latest fantasy sci-fi, question mark, Uh, either of those (laughs) novels um, set in New York. And because it is set in New York, it is emotional and angry and dark in a way that I think will be appealing to you, but it's also really fast-paced and fun. So while it has all of those like emotional notes that you're asking for, I think it's also going to be like an actually pleasant reading experience. Um, So The City We Became... I think it's sci-fi. Like, it's so hard to classify some of her books sometimes. Um, but it's obviously sets place in New York. And in this universe, uh, every city has, a, like, an actual soul. Like, a city is, a, is an embodied living thing. And when the city is being born, the, some of the humans, or one human more often who lives in it, becomes the avatar for that city. Like, the living, breathing, walking embodiment of the spirit of that place. And New York is being born when the book opens, like as a as a living entity. Um, and it, instead of having just one human avatar, it has six, one for each borough, and then an overreaching like main avatar who embodies the all of the spirits of all boroughs um, in one person. And the it, like, it's it's based on some Lovecraftian ideas. So this like very eldritch squirts 
uh, Serpenty, not Serpenty, um, Squiddy, I think is the word that I'm looking for, um, being from like a parallel universe wants to destroy the city before it's even born. And cities have been battling this enemy since humanity started erecting high towers, you know, um, for reasons that are like very strange and like mathy, like quantum mm-hmm. mathy um, that she explains in the book. And when, she, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, that's fascinating. And I kind of don't get it, but like I'm here for it. Um, so lots of high uh, math stuff. Um, but each of the boroughs in the city has to reckon for themselves about whether or not they're going to accept this is like assignment to be, you know, Queens or Manhattan or whatever. Um, and then they have to come together as six and defeat this like evil or because like the stakes are real. If the if New York is not born or if New York is defeated by this like ancient enemy, everyone in it will die. And maybe not just everyone in the city, but maybe like everyone in our living universe. And so the best part about this is the characters, like the people who are selected to embody the various boroughs are all so great. Bronx is the best. The Bronx is the best. Um, and the diversity in this book is amazing because it's about New York. So like, why wouldn't it be? The Staten Island character is just, I mean, a trip. It's an experience, let me tell you. And there is a lot of interesting from somebody like I'm not from New York. I like have been there, obviously, but I don't have any particular feelings about New York as a place or a city or an experience or anything. And so reading about like why Staten Island is its own strange offshoot borough that ends up being like a lot of trouble for the rest of the boroughs in this uh, story was really fascinating to me because I had no idea that Staten Island was so like, I don't know, apart, but also not, but also kind of, but also not. It's just really complicated and interesting. Very action packed. There's a lot of fight scenes that aren't typical fight scenes like with fists, but are more fight scenes with like music and art. And oh, it's just really, really interesting and, and imaginative and fun. So that's The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. Yeah, cosine. I've been calling it if N.K. Jemison wrote an Avengers movie. Yes. <laughs> like that's sort of the vibe. Like a social justice Avengers movie. <laughs> yeah. New York Assemble. Good times. Uh, okay, our next question is from Anonymous, who says, I'm looking for a book that features a blind or deaf character. I read literary fiction, magical realism, and historical fiction, but I'm open to all fiction. So I was so excited because it means I can tread out a romance that I loved called Friend with Benefits Zone by Laura Brown, who is herself a hard of hearing, deaf hard of hearing. And she... It has written a romance that like I like I the, I hate the phrase the friend zone for obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like very nervous about this book. And then I loved it because it is about best friends who have secret unrequited feelings for you. And Amanda, it is 100 percent like if you would just say a sentence. Yes. This book would not like the plot would never happen. Like if they had just <sighs> talked to each other about their so feelings at the start <laughs> of this book, none of this would have happened. But they don't because sometimes you don't you just can't say the words right so the main character uh, she is deaf and she has a best friend and when the book opens she's like you know she's a cocktail waitress she's she's really just struggling to get by she gets evicted from her basement crappy apartment 
And so she ends up moving in with her best friend. And there are unrequited feelings there. And it is just so much fun to watch these two characters, like, try to figure out what they're doing with their lives. Because, you know, Jasmine, uh, she, like, she has goals, but she hasn't really been able to express them to anyone or figure out how to reach them. And some of that is because of her deafness, but a lot of it is, like, emotional baggage from her family. Like, there's a lot going on for her. And then Devin, too, has, like, some family drama that he's, like, trying to figure out how to navigate and also the, their long history as friends. And it's just, I found it really satisfying. And it also, you know, the the way that Jasmine moves through the world is essential to the book because she is deaf. And so, like, what that looks like is just, it's just, like, naturally baked into the book. Like, you know, doorbells are not a thing. Flashing lights to tell you that somebody has a door is a thing. Or like, how do you get the attention of a person who is your cocktail waitress down the bar? You know, you slap the bar, you don't call for them. Like things like that, that like I as a hearing able person have never considered. It was a real eye opener for me and also made me realize like I need to get out of my bubble. Like I need to read Mm -hmm. way more books with deaf and hard of hearing characters um, because that's not a thing that should be surprising to me. And yet... So I just, but I also I love the romance. So there's a lot to love here. So again, that's Friend with Benefits Zone by Laura Brown. Okay, I picked Hello Universe by Erin and Trada Kelly, which is a middle grade novel with a little bit of magical realism in it that I think you will really like. So this is about a boy named Virgil, who is, uh, and now the whole thing takes place in a single day and is about four middle schoolers. The main character is a boy named Virgil, who is a very introverted boy, and he has a, a large, loud, extroverted Filipino family um, who he mostly does not like understand or connect well with because he is so introverted and they tease him about it a little bit. But he is very connected to his Lola, his grandmother, who understands him and like talks to him like a normal person and tells him all of these Filipino folk tales to help him get through the challenges that he's facing being an introvert surrounded by all these extroverts. Virgil has a crush on his friend Valencia, who is deaf and will, cannot tell her because he's too shy. So he becomes the client of a girl named Kaori and her younger sister, Jen, who are self-proclaimed, Kaori at least is like a self-proclaimed psychic, to help him profess his love for Valencia. And then the last character, uh, the last POV character is Chet, who is a bully who has been bullying Virgil for like his whole childhood. Um, and so in the single day, you get an encounter in the woods between Chet and Virgil that leaves Virgil in a kind of life-threatening situation that involves like a well and a, and a guinea pig. It's just, oh, it's so, it's like high enough stakes that a kid reader will be like, oh no, but like low enough stakes that an adult reader doesn't immediately freak out. You know what I mean? Um, and so you're with him as he's reacting to this, this situation that he finds himself in and trying to figure out what to do. And then all the other characters and how they respond to uh, what's happening. The interesting thing about this book, and I think why the reason why I picked it for you is that Valencia, the deaf character, is the only first-person POV character in the whole book. All the other characters are third-person. So, like, you understand where they're coming from and you get their motivations and all of that. Um, But Valencia is the only head that you're, like, really, really, really in. Uh, And I loved that kind of, uh, not conceit, but, you know, that, like, tool (laughs) that Kelly uses to tell these stories. And because you're in her head and you can see um, her, like, kind of like sometimes really snarky or sarcastic or just like really witty responses to people that she never bothers to like sign or what she just thinks that um and you get to really get to know her and and understand why Virgil 
who is not obviously in her head because he's not an actual psychic, um, gets her, like understands the things that she's thinking and feeling. She doesn't have to explain herself to him. And this is part of the reason why the relationship is like so cute. It's, I mean, they're 11, you know, like I'm using the word romance in heavy quotations. You know? like he's got a, <laughs> an 11 year old's crush on an 11 year old, you know, like their middle school. Um, but it's just adorable. It's so cute. And I love it so much. So that is um, Hello Universe by Aaron and Trana Kelly. Okay, let's see. Question four is from Roxanne, who says, I'll be volunteering at a remote ranger station this summer where social distancing is built in. I'd love to hear your recommendations for fictional women-centered stories in which the environment or setting plays a significant role. Light or dark, magical realism, horror, mystery, any genre, some of my favorite nonfiction books related to this idea are The Hungry Ocean, The Legacy of Luna, and West with the Night. I also liked The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon and loved Sourdough. Uh, Preferably no graphic novels. Okay, what you got, Jen? I decided to reread, which I have not read since a teenager, Prodigal Summer by Barbara Kingsolver. And let me tell you, this was a surreal experience because it turns out that I did not remember basically any of that book accurately. <laughs> it is about a woman named Deanna who is a ranger at a very remote mountain cabin in Appalachia. And she is, you know, she's a wildlife biologist and she's hoping and praying that this coyote family that has recently moved into the territory will stay safe and like will breed for all kinds of ecology reasons. And then one day she meets a young hunter who is there like on, you know, public land, like not supposed to be hunting anything. And she's very afraid that he's there for the coyotes. But they actually end up having an affair. And it is and that's the part of the book that I remembered. What I did not remember is that you also get all of these amazing storylines from the surrounding area. There's a village nearby where or a town where most everybody are farmers in various ways. And one of the storylines is Lusa, who is a moth uh, what do you call it? She's a bug scientist. Epi- no, epidemiology is not Entomologist? Entomologist. Yes, yes, I yes. I think that's right. <laughs> uh, and so, so she and she marries a farmer who then he dies. Oh, yeah. Trigger warnings for this book. I forgot to do this at the beginning. Uh, death of a spouse, also cancer and bigotry. And there might be a couple others. I've not done rereading it yet, but now I don't trust my memory of this book because I completely forgot like half of the book. Um, <sighs> but Lusa is her husband has died, who is the farmer. They were relatively newly married. And now she's trying to figure out, like, the farm is hers. What is she going to do? And she's sort of having to navigate his very large extended family who haven't really accepted her. And then there's these two old feuding neighbors, Nanny Raleigh, who is amazing. She's this very independent older woman who is an organic farmer. And then her next door neighbor, Garnet Walker, is this like very sort of classic old white man who's got a lot of like bigoted perspectives about like, you know, evolution or whatever. Um, and he like hates that she's, you know, her weeds are coming onto his side of the the fence line or whatever. Um, and they're all so entrenched in the nat- natural world in various ways. And it's so good. Oh, my gosh. Like, I forget sometimes because I the her more recent works have not been for me. 
But this was the book that made me read basically everything Barbara Kingsolver ever wrote. And I think it's, I think it's, I really think it holds up well over time because it is so thoughtful about where we come from and why we have, you know, the baggage that we do and how easy it is to misunderstand other people around us. And then how essential nature is in all of these different ways that sometimes we don't even recognize that that's nature that we're relying on or like we are very specifically in tune with it in a particular way and have to navigate how other people you know interact with that form of nature and obviously a big part of this is Deanna being very isolated and you get her like just tromping around the woods like looking for birds and coyotes and whatever you know (laughs) bugs under the logs like it's just so satisfying (laughs) so I'm really grateful for this question because I'm really enjoying the reread. Also, I cannot believe how much of this book I did not remember. Uh, so again, that's Prodigal Summer by Barbara Kingsolver. Okay, I had to take this to the contributors because I had I just had nothing for you. So Sharifa, who is our managing editor, recommended the word for woman is wilderness. There's so many W's in there. The word for woman is wilderness by Abby Andrews, which is a novel um, from Serpent's Tale. It's a, it's a little small press, came out in 2018. And this is about a 19-year-old girl named Erin. And she has never, like, left England and has had kind of a closeted life. But she's watched, you know, a lot of Bear Grylls, Survivor Man kind of stuff, (laughs) and has decided that it's, like, kind of BS that the only people who get to tell these cool wilderness adventure stories are dudes. So she sets off by herself as a 19-year-old woman alone on this Alaskan wilderness challenge where she's going to go through the Arctic Circle cross the like width of the American continent and end up in Denali in the wild in like a cabin in the woods um, is there, on the ice. I don't even know what's Denali like. I have no idea where she's going to go and survive by herself and make kind of a documentary about it. So you get some interview transcripts, um, some like uh, different kinds of, it's not mixed media, like there aren't images, but different kinds of writing um, from Aaron that makes the book feel almost like a journal uh, when it isn't. It's obviously a novel, but you have to keep reminding yourself like, this is not a memoir. <laughs> and so she sets out to do just that. And there's so much that she she's a hilarious narrator. Um, and so much of the book is about like, why Jack Kerouac is full of crap. <laughs> Which <laughs> is so relevant to my interest because Jack Kerouac was so full of crap. And also Thoreau, like there's some Thoreau takedowns in here, which I'm entirely here for. It's just very satisfying. Um, the, my only like quibble with it is that it doesn't talk very much about female explorers, about which there have been several. But the point remains that, like, Bear Girls has a show, but there is no female equivalent of Bear Girls or Survivor Man or whatever. Like, all of these adventure shows are still about dudes and white dudes exclusively. Um, so, yeah, it, that I feel like it's, like, right up your... It's very... You know, she's isolated. She's not in a... Um, what am I trying to say? She's not in, a, like, a fire uh, tower by herself, but she is still off by herself doing the thing. Social distance built in, uh, just in the cold. So that's The Word for Woman is Wilderness by Abby Andrews. All right, let's do another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, 
but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Question five is from Agnes, who says, I recently read the Passage trilogy by Justin Cronin and loved it so much. I recommended it to some people and now they want more similar books. Me too. Unfortunately, I think it's one of a kind. Please, please recommend post-apocalyptic, fast-paced with many greatly developed characters, female too, preferably a series with an emphasis on survival stuff. So it, there are just not that many. It's yeah, just, so this doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's really, there are just aren't. It's true. But, you know, we can get you sort of close, a little bit close. Uh, I picked The Book of M by Pung Shepherd, which comes with trigger warnings for threat of sexual violence and gore. And I do think, so in the, in the first book of the passage where you are getting the actual, like, everything's falling apart moments... That is what kind of narrative you're getting in the Book of M. You're not getting this like 100 years out stuff. Um, you're just getting the moment of collapse. And in the Book of M, what's happening is not vampires, uh, manufactured vampires, no less. It is a weird epidemic of people forgetting which doesn't seem like it should be that serious, right? Like, oh, people can forget things. It's fine. But the problem is, is that as they start to forget, they also forget, like, to the point where eventually they no longer remember to eat. They maybe forget how to breathe. Like, their body forgets how to live. And it starts very small and then grows. They also lose their shadows and, side note, can suddenly start to do magic. But the more magic they do, the faster they forget. So the faster they die. It's really weird and surreal and kind of amazing. And nobody knows how it spreads. <laughs> so this is like a little, you know, uh, it's it's like if you're like not wanting to read about pandemics, do not read this book. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so nobody knows how it spreads. And everybody's just trying to like do the best they can and not get it. And you are mostly following Ori and his wife, Max, who have been, they went to a wedding as this was all like starting to happen and then ended up staying at this, you know, 
like venue that's out in the woods because it seemed like the safest place for them to be. And Max does start to forget she her shadow disappears, which is the sign that now she's got this thing. And so she leaves and Ori is like, no, don't leave me like I need you know, I need to take care of you. So he is following her. And there's also a character named Naz, who is a student in Boston, who is, uh, you know, caught up in all of this as well, and trying to reunite with her sister. And so she ends up on the road. And they both like their stories eventually intersect. There are all kinds of people that they meet on the road. There is a big survivalist element. There's also like they end up in DC at a certain point, And like, there's this like roving pack of people who have forgotten things that are super dangerous and like how do you navigate that situation and then there's you know a supposed like place where everybody's gathering to fight off the forces of whatever and maybe there's a guru who's going to save them all and what's going to happen it's like there's really high stakes and i just loved it the ending is sort of a heartbreaker in a way that i found very satisfying but some people were like you know throwing the book across the room mad about (sighs) So who knows how you will feel about it, but I just I think it I think it's it's in the same general wheelhouse as the passage in a lot of ways. So again, that's the Book of M by Pung Shepherd. Um, yeah. So yeah. I think the the closest thing I think to the passage is the Stand Stephen King book. Yeah, agree actually, but. I did not pick that. I picked Station Eleven, and the reason I did not pick the Stand is because it does not have well-developed female characters. It has female characters. That's the end of that sentence. And also, it was written pre-internet. So the uh, I think one of the great things about the passage is so much of the survival stuff feels relatable because so much of the struggles are like, yeah, but how do I get there? Because I don't have GPS, like that kind of thing. Um, and the stand takes place before any of that was an issue. So it feels a little removed from like mo- an apocalypse that would occur in 2020 as opposed to one that occurs in like 1970 or whenever the stand takes place. So Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, I I feel like <laughs> most accurately represents the experience of living through a pandemic, but one that turns out much worse than the one that we're living in now. So this is an apocalypse. This is very much like the passage, like an illness spreads through the world and kills off, you know, a bajillion percent of the population. And you are following mostly a troop of like a nomadic troop of actors after the apocalypse has happened, who are very much in survival mode, but travel around the Great Lakes region, um, visiting other communities, you know, um, collections of people who were trying to get by, um, doing Shakespeare for them, like continuing the traditions of art in this post-apocalyptic humanity kind of situation. Um, And there's also like flashbacks to how civilization collapsed and the the different, the lives that uh, the actors in this troupe led before they got to where they are now and how they ended up in this like nomadic situation going around the Great Lakes region. Um, But her handling, and I, I saw it Emily St. John Mandel be interviewed after the book came out and she talks she described it as like a love letter to modern life which I just love and there are so many points in this book where it feels so much more real because of that perspective like a lot of the characters end up living in an airport because that's you know where they were when everything like goes down but it got it got me really thinking about like 
an airport would be an amazing place to live out a pandemic because there's so much food and there's like so much built-in security. You can see anybody approaching you from any number, like miles away because of the way the tarmacs are built and like that kind of thing. And she takes in all of these details of what a person living in the, you know, 2018 when this book came, or 2014 rather, um, would be like what the struggles for a modern person would be if all of that just fell apart. Also, it's not hopeless, which I think is important. And neither is the passage. Like the passage, maybe the first book, but like the trilogy as a whole is not hopeless, either about humanity or about humanity's inability or ability to recover from something that seems species ending. Like Station Eleven has ends on a very hopeful note, which I think if you're reading it right now, you might appreciate. So that's Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. All right. Our next question is from Nadia, who says, I'm a pretty avid reader of young adult fantasy. I like how fun, addictive, and fast-paced they are. I can get through them quickly. However, lately I've been finding them to be more and more predictable. Also, I'm getting past the intended age demographic for YA, and I'm feeling more disconnected to the characters in the book. So I've been meaning to start branching out and dipping my toes into adult fantasy, but I don't know where to start. For someone who's used to reading YA fantasy, they all seem kind of intimidating to me, especially with their size. Can you please recommend an adult fantasy book or series for someone who is just getting into it? Okay, um, I'm going to keep going. So I picked We Ride Upon Sticks by Quanberry, which is a new book that just came out in March and is a great crossover for a YA reader who is looking to read an adult novel. So this is about a group of high school students, but it's put out by an adult publisher by Pantheon. And it is an adult. It's not like coming of age. Um, So all the girls in this book are on a field hockey team. Uh, It's their senior year, and it takes place in Danvers, Massachusetts, which was part of the Salem village in the 1600s, you know, Salem of the witch trials fame. And these girls... Um, <laughs> I don't even, so it takes place in the 80s and has such great 80s, like, iconography. Like, one of the characters has the bangs situation, you know, like, 80s bangs, like, big 80s bangs, and they call it the claw. And, like, her mood is indicated by how the claw is positioned on her head. And, like, the claw responds to things that are going on. Anyway, their field hockey team is terrible. Like, they have never won a game. And they have decided that this is going to be their winning season. And in order to make it their winning season, they sign their names over to the devil in an Emilio Estevez notebook. And then everything starts falling apart after that. And So that's the fantasy element is like the witchcraft. And it's not high fantasy like a lot of YA fantasies are. Um, It is very much like maybe the devil is actually helping them. I don't like supernatural stuff is maybe happening here. Or maybe they're just teenage girls who have like through the force of will are changing everything about their lives. Maybe that's what's happening. Um, The writing is hilarious. There's something to laugh about in every single paragraph, even when the subject matter is not funny. Because, you know, they're 18-year-old girls, and it's the 80s, and there's so many references to Jordak jeans. Like, I could not handle (laughs) how funny it was. It's super, super funny. Very, like, kind of dark and weird. It reminded me of, like, Megan Abbott, of that kind of teenage girl noir, like, the power of a teenage girl's brain, and the kind of stuff that when they get together, they can make happen, and how horrifying that can be to adults. So I think that's why this is a great crossover for a YA reader, because it is still about characters who are doing things that you will find recognizable, but um, treated in a more, I don't know, like not, you're not watching these characters grow up. You're watching them like wield the dark arts <laughs> in a way that their forebearers would have been proud. Like some of these girls are descended from, um, you know, like infinite, infamous Salem accusers like Ann Putnam and that kind of thing. So it's it's really entertaining and fun. And it's almost hard to say that it's fun because a lot of it's really dark, but oh, it's just such a good read. So that's We Ride Upon Sticks by Quanberry. 
I picked a Get Booked Chestnut. <laughs> I picked Kushiel's Dart by Jacqueline yes. Carey, which is the first in the Phaedra trilogy that Amanda and I are both obsessed with. Um, comes with trigger warnings for abduction and rape. I picked it because, you know, I was looking at the the Your Favorite Wife fantasy series, and, you know, there's definitely a lot of world building in those. And I think that you might find the world building of the Phaedra trilogy very satisfying. Also, the first book, Kushiel's Dart, takes our main character from childhood to, like, you know, I guess, like, it's like a new adulthood, I guess I would say. Like, she's no longer school-aged, but she's not a grown-up yet. And she is also thrust in the middle of all of these really intense political adventures. Um, So it is like a medieval world based on France. And free love is very much a thing in this situation. Like, courtesans are held in very high regard. It's like there's a whole religion around love that's built up and that's, you know, adopted by the people of this land. And also they're all descended from basically like archangels so they're all really beautiful it's it's very yeah you know it's very idealized in that way but there are various like class distinctions and she comes from a very poor family she is sold into indentured servitude as a child to you know the night court which is the court of the courtesans that's like a very repetitive thing that i just said um and she's trained to you know when she comes of age be one but she it turns out has been like the hand of the god is upon her there's this marking in her eye that means she is a servant of kushil who is like a very like sadistic sort of god um and so she has this like superpower which is that she you know pain is pleasure to her in certain ways and so she's very like considered this very rare you know person in this society and in this religion and that puts her in a very interesting position in terms of like everybody wants to talk to her everybody wants to hire her and sometimes they tell her things that they don't mean to and she's been trained in the art of spying so she is spying on all of her patrons. And then, you know, the country is betrayed and invaders are coming and she gets shunted off to try to, you know, not interfere. But of course she does. And there's this whole epic journey involved. And there's like a lot going on. I'm doing a very rough summary here. <laughs> but it's so interesting. The world is so fascinating. And the premise is not one that's like anything else I've ever read. Mm. And it is just very satisfying and it moves quickly. And the the feelings, especially in this first one, do feel very like she has a lot of like preteen and then teen angst that she has to deal with for like really solid reasons and the characters are so great like there's definitely some found family going on which you know you mentioned you like the six of crows duology which i think has some of that so there's a lot of different elements that i think you'll find familiar and enjoyable but it is definitely geared towards adults ultimately and like puts her in very adult situations especially in the following books so that is kushil's dart which is the first in the phaedra trilogy by jacqueline Carrie. Cosign. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Forever. Uh, I know. Like, people don't need us to tell them to read that, but I do think it's perfect for this question in particular. Okay. Anyway, so Heidi is our last asker who says, I'm looking for books to get lost in. In particular, I'd love to get my teeth into a series. I've, as I've gotten older, I realize I'm not a fan of fantasy or magical realism, which makes finding series difficult nowadays. I like gritty, character driven stories with female leads and themes of feminism, queerness, gender, race, family dynamics, social justice, etc. 
My favorite writers include Sally Rooney, Dolly Alderton, Pandora Sykes, Sarah Moss, Chumamanda Ngozi Adichie, and I also love the Pages for You slash Pages for Her series from Sylvia Brownrigg. All right. I'm just going to keep talking. So I, you didn't say that you like mystery, but you didn't say that you didn't want mystery. (laughs) So that's how I'm threading this needle. I picked The Dime by Kathleen Kent, which is from my TBR. Basically, everyone at Book Riot that I've talked to about this has loved it. Um, Does come with trigger warnings for sexism and homophobia. It is about a lesbian detective who comes from a long line of, like, Brooklyn police, and she ends up relocating to Dallas, Texas, where she is very much a fish out of water. And she is dealing with now things like Mexican drug cartels and cult leaders and, you know, society wives and like all of these things that are just very outside of her experience. And so she has to like do the cop thing in these very strange circumstances while battling, you know, others' perceptions of her, her perceptions of what's around her, all of that stuff. And like I said, everybody I've talked to who's read this at Book Riot has, like, raved about it. It's made several of our, like, favorite mystery lists over the past years. I'm just, like, waiting a thousand years for my library hole to come in. Uh, But I think it might satisfy you because it definitely has those themes that you're looking for and, again, comes highly recommended by lots of folks. So, again, that is the by Kathleen Kent, first in a series. Okay, I picked the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante, translated by Anne Goldstein. The first one is My Brilliant Friend. I probably don't need to say anything else about it. You're welcome. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, so, trigger warning for domestic violence in all of these books. If you have, I mean, I'm only halfway kidding. Do I need to tell you about what the Ferrante novels are about? Um, they take place in the 50s in uh, Naples, in Italy, and they're about the friendship between two little girls as they grow into elderly women. And actually, they're elderly when the book opens, but then it's flashbacks to like all of their whole lives growing up in mid-century Naples um, in poverty. Both of them are very poor. Um, They're both brilliant and brilliant in ways that get them in a lot of trouble throughout their lives. Um, One of them is beautiful. One of them is not. And one of them is brilliant in a... in a very conventional way. And that's the narrator. She ends up being an author later in her life. Um, She's good at school. She's good at memorization. She's good at, um, you know, doing what she's told. And she's not a very creative thinker. And then her best friend, the other character, um, is a creative thinker. But she doesn't necessarily get good grades. She's just a natural genius. Like one of those people who can't be put in a box, can't be told what to do. Um, She has so much poverty and trauma in her life that she is willing to do a lot to escape it, including like marry the first boy who's nice to her, even though she could have a brilliant academic career for a woman. Asterisks in the 50s in Italy, you know, like there's a lot of asterisks happening here about what they can expect out of their lives. Um, and there's also like a lot of organized crime in their neighborhood. There's tons of domestic violence. There's tons of inter-neighbor um, strife and drama and just the like, you know, if you followed people living in an apartment block for 50 years, everything that you would get, like all of the drama and infighting and small kindnesses and small cruelties and large kindnesses and large cruelties that you would get out of that living experiences here in this like four book series. But it is, you know, four books about a female friendship that is not, um, doesn't pull any punches. Like sometimes these women hate each other beyond like the ability to articulate it. Sometimes these women are competing with each other either academically or financially or for the same man sometimes or 
you know, the older they get and the kind of the more mellow they get, like, for who can be the most mellow? Like, it's just an amazing and human and really accurate, I think, uh, encapsulation of a lifelong friendship and how it grows and changes as people, as the people in it grow and change. There's also a mystery at the center of it that you, that I, as a reader, like forget was happening from the beginning until it like comes back up. But anyway, if you do want a mystery, there's a tiny touch of it here, but not as much as uh, in the Kathleen Cunt. Anyway, they're just like so well written. They're engrossing. I read all four of them in like like two weeks because I just couldn't stop. Um, which for like you know a work of translated literary fiction that takes place. 50 years before I took place as a person <laughs> is I think saying something like it's it is like highbrow like this is highbrow literary fiction right but it doesn't read like highbrow literary fiction if I can say that um it is super super easy to get absorbed in so that's uh the Neapolitan novels by Olena Ferrante the first book is my brilliant friend also excellent HBO series little plug for that that's it. That's our show. Hey! hey. Doing the wave with one person at my desk. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It makes the show easier to find. Um, thank you to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And you can find me on Instagram as I am Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And I'm on Twitter as Jen IRL. And we will talk to y'all next week. Bye.